Ingram Smith, Buddy Elliott, back again for another episode of the Nullcast. Uh, but got a lot of stuff to cover, as has been the case over the past couple of weeks. Some good, some bad. Uh, certainly something that I think almost everybody would agree is good is that there um, only continues to be more of a positive trend as to college football being played in general, uh, college football being played in the fall. You know, maybe things looking a little more normal than we would have thought three or four weeks ago. But as always, I uh, want to thank our friends in New Iberia, Louisiana, Louisiana Hot Sauce, three simple ingredients, one fantastic product, the title sponsor of the Nolcast, and uh, we always tip our hat to those who make the Nolcast possible, and they play as large of a role as anyone. Uh, so with that, Bud, let's uh, let's jump into this morning Nolcast and uh, see what see what comes of it. Morning, man. Yeah, I'm excited, excited to do this one. Uh, I'm excited that college football uh, looks like it's going to be on its way back, at least in uh, in some shape or form. And I'm I'm pretty excited about that. It, this is going to be going to be pretty cool. Uh, looks like Florida State is preparing to be ready to have have players back on campus sometime in June, which is is great. I um, mean, assuming that there's no uh, no more spikes or, or anything like that. We, we saw Clemson uh, as well in the ACC is also having players back in June. We've had some questions recently about uh, like how the ACC would handle this because you do have so many different programs within the ACC at, at ver- in various states. Uh, in fact, I think the ACC is, is probably one of the most spread out conferences in the country uh, as far as the area it covers and, and just the, the number of different states. What do we have? 10 different states, I think, with, with 14 teams. That's, that's probably some kind of record uh, as far as conferences go. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to see what happens here? I know Florida State's players and, and staff are are excited to get back to the uh, voluntary uh, workouts uh, w- whenever they do come. Always voluntary. It's a it's a good thing. You know, it sounds like most of the roster has returned to campus. I knew June one was a, a date that was knocked around by some. Not sure that that was fully made official, but uh, it does appear as though you know things are are starting to return uh, to normal. I talked to a lot of different people throughout the past ten days or so. And the general consensus that I got from them is that they thought college football would carry on in the fall. Uh, they thought that college football might carry on maybe two weeks behind schedule or something like that. And so uh, of all the possibilities that we've talked about and all of the uh, concerns that we had to, you know, even get the games on the field, I think uh, I think the last week has been as positive as any time. And I think you can be fairly comfortable that you'll see college football in the year 2020, uh, the calendar year 2020. And uh, to that, I think everybody can agree that uh, we should be rightly excited about. Good news on that front, if nothing else. Exactly. Now, I I wish we would see a little more good news on it from around the country. Uh, But ultimately, at this point, I I think, I don't want to say, can we say more FBS programs are planning on being back in June than than are not? I I don't know if we can fully say that, but I think think we can say an encouraging number of of programs are are planning to be back, at least in some capacity, in June. and and. and that gives me hope that, that some stragglers might be back, you know, by, by the time July comes around. And, and obviously, safety is the name of the game. There, you, you don't want to you, you don't want to put college football in, in front of public safety. But uh, but it is good to see that back. Certainly for my job and and, and for this podcast too. Although I, I feel like we've done a, a decent job of keeping it entertaining for the folks out there. I, I also think this really helps for state staff uh, if these guys can get back on campus because they just as a new staff, I think these guys are at such a disadvantage because they really have not had the opportunity. Uh, to work with their players in that traditional sense. Not to say that they haven't done anything. They, they clearly have tried to use Zoom to the best of their abilities. I think they've been 
pretty, you know, up on the technology. You know, I, I don't think they're sending their kids Apple watches to monitor their uh, uh, sleep patterns. And, and I don't know if you caught that or not, but uh, uh, you had a program out there sending Apple watches to the kids to uh, not to monitor their workouts, which is, of course, not legal, but uh, to make sure they're getting good sleep. Diving deep into REM sleep, definitely, and want to make sure all our kids get it. Um, not to belabor the point, uh, something we've talked about for a while, I still think I think this is a big positive step because you're getting college athletes back on campus. I think it's a big college step because you're getting college students back on campus. I still think that is a, a massive thing that has to happen. The University of Michigan uh, president had a quote out that said something like, if if kids aren't on campus, we won't be playing football. You know, that that's still a very real concern. And, uh, you know, the general return of any aspect of the student body to campus is a good thing. And I, I still think that we're going to have to see you're going to have to see students on campus for a vast majority of institutions if you wish to see college students on the athletic field participating in in football overall. So uh, something to monitor, something we'll watch. But for now, uh, nothing but uh, positive things for the most part when it comes to college football 2020 uh, going on on somewhat of a, a regular planned schedule. Speaking of something that's back, I'm really excited that, that our friends and partners at Madison Social are back and, and they're, they're practicing the, you know, the socially responsible dining. But it, it, it's, I'm just really happy for, for Matt and those guys that this didn't you know, drag on for, for as long as perhaps uh, some thought it might. And uh, I'm, I'm glad they're back. We really thank all, all of our listeners for supporting them during this time, whether it was buying a shirt or buying a gift card or, or if you're local in Tallahassee and you, know, you weren't you know, traveling during this time. Going in and, and getting Mad So for takeout. Now, if you feel comfortable, we, we encourage y'all to get back to Mad So to get back to Township. And, and they, luckily for them, like they have a lot of outdoor dining space as well, which is maybe it's just something in my brain, but I just feel a little more comfortable dining outside, right? Like I, I haven't gone into a restaurant to eat yet, but like I've been to out, you know, out, outdoor tables at restaurants and, uh, and Mad So and Township certainly have a ton of, of outdoor open air seating as well with the, uh, with, with the shade and the fans, which, and this is sort of uh, necessary, I think, if you're dining outdoors in Tallahassee. So definitely check out Matso, check out Township if you're able. And, and we really pr- appreciate your support of those guys. So uh, it would probably come to no surprise as uh, to listeners of the Nolcast to know that I follow one Bud Elliott on Twitter and have for uh, 11 or 12 years. And this morning I woke up to see you update uh, this count that we've kind of continually talked about. And the count is the drastic disparity of 2020 kids committed versus kids in previous class. I believe the number that you tweeted out about 30 minutes ago is 871 kids currently committed when compared to 380 as of last year. So um, just kind of kind of a continuation of a wild trend that we've talked about. It's going to lead to a you know decommitment season, uh, the likes of which we've never seen. But uh, I feel like that's probably our, our place to pick up and talk about when it comes to the subject of recruiting matter that we'll move into in a little bit, you know, fuller conversation. But, you know, I think it's I think it's three or four different reasons. I'll let you kind of expand more as to why this continues to happen. Uh, but it's a fascinating thing to look at. And, you know, we're discussing a, a university that's probably about to pick up two commitments in and of it, you know, to itself. So let's just jump into commitments, kids that Florida State might get and uh, why we continue to see so many kids committed this year versus previous ones. Yeah, so the, uh, really the, the answer is is the pandemic. 
871 kids committed it right now uh, for the class of 2021. This time last year, class of 2020, uh, 380. Now, we are probably like six weeks ahead of schedule as, as far as, as commits. Typically, June and July are huge months for commits. Uh, this year, March and April were, were huge months. And, and I think the reason was is that, well, it's twofold. It's from the schools and, and, and it's from the kids. On the one hand, uh, I think kids sort of panicked a little bit and were just trying to secure a spot anywhere uh, before they, you know, looked around later in the fall. And schools, a lot of schools are taking kids who they would ordinarily never say yes to in March or April because they would say no, you ha- or May, you, and you have to come to our camp in June or July so we can evaluate you, so we can actually get a feel for how good you are. And that response, come to our camp, is one that is is given out many times, even after seeing a prospect in person during the spring evaluation period, right? Because it's spring evaluations, summer camps. This year, uh, we, we have neither of these things. And that is leading to an information deficit for schools. And a lot of schools are just going ahead and, and taking these guys uh, with the knowledge that they'll probably have to cut them later if they don't like them, or if the kid is perhaps way too good for their school, if he turns out to be awesome. And a lot of these schools don't know because all they have is the tape and the tape is good, but the tape's not complete, right? They, they don't have that in-person evaluation. They don't have camps. They don't have combines. And people think all that, all that padless football doesn't mean a thing. Uh, no, I, I talked to coaches out there. They're, they're flying blind a lot more than they normally would this year. Now, with Florida State specifically, because this is an old podcast, Florida State has taken the position that they do not want to take kids who, it's fairly obvious, just want to grab a spot and then continue to look around. They want to be, I don't want to say full-on Clemson model, because that's not accurate, but they want to... Uh, they want to make sure that they are getting kids who actually want to be at Florida State, who are committed to Florida State. I don't think they're going to have a 100% retention rate where they're at right now, but I know for a fact Florida State has turned down some kids who were very open in that like they're just trying to grab a spot and then continue to look around. So FSU so far, just going through my head here, they have not taken commitments from anybody who has not visited or with whom this staff did not have a prior existing relationship from their 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 prior schools. So if you're Florida State, you're going to be kind of you're you're, you're going to be you're going to be in chase mode come the fall in in, ter- in terms of trying to flip some of these guys. But you, I think with Florida State, the the other side of that, and people will say to me, well, why don't they just take some of these kids? FSU doesn't have any kind of relationship by normal standards with the players uh, and the coaches in this state right now. They have not been able to get out on the road and meet them. They don't have a real heavy Florida staff. Uh, as it is. And so this spring evaluation period was going to be really key for this staff. It's one of the reasons why I think we, we should really consider this a year zero situation uh, for them. And really for, for all year one coaches now who are not, you know, uh, internal hires and, and replacements. I think if Florida State is, if they take a kid, right, who they're like, yeah, I mean, like, we, we think he's probably a camp kid for us. So a kid that you know, not really committable offer. We're going to give him uh, one of these come to camp offers. And if he, you know, if we like him at camp and we green light him to go ahead and, and, and commit to his, his offer, uh, if they take a kid, they're like, yeah, we, we think he, we probably would have offered him if he had come to camp and checked out. And then they 
without the camp opportunity, if they just take that commitment now and then they see him in the fall and they're like, ooh, man, now this kid actually is, is not our level of kid. Like we, we misjudged this. And there's a significant chance of that, right? I think schools are dealing with that nationwide. But if you're a new school without those relationships in the state, the worry for state is that they get the bad reputation in the state of, of dropping all these kids. Whereas if you're a school that has a more defined or, or established reputation as far as your staff, uh, maybe you have a little more leeway to, to do things like that. FSU does not want its first impression to be a negative one with the high school coaches in the state. And, and I, I think there is some merit to that. that that's, that's their strategy. Are there some kids who I think they could take? Maybe, but at least as far as I understand it, like some of the guys who wanted to commit are, are dudes who were trying to commit to four or five different schools in a given weekend. And then somebody finally said yes. So it really, like, what's the value of, of that, I guess? Some nice message board pub fans that feel better for a week because they look and they see their class slightly higher evaluated on a team chart ranking that really doesn't matter at this point. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. I'll, I'll throw in one. There is no quicker process to a sour relationship with, with coaches, uh, high school coaches in particular, but some of the other people that get involved in recruiting process than, than having to back away from a kid um, and, and have a kid who's committed who you have to ultimately tell uh, can't be in your class. So there was a kid, this is like 20 years ago, 25 years ago. This is the very much at the time where Bowden is at his high peak. And Florida State has as strong of a relationship with getting kids out of Lake City High School as possible. Raynard Wilson, uh, Jerome Carter, Kendall Pope, all these individuals came from there. They had a defensive end where there was a miscommunication about where the kid was ultimately committed to. was committed to Florida State. I think Florida State had to push him out, and the kid ended up signing with Syracuse or something like that. And Florida State was basically told not to come to campus for 18 months uh, for a school to which that staff had this, you know, pretty significant track record of recruiting kids, developing kids, and going from there. So uh, point is, even a staff that's isn't entrenched and been around as long as uh, that staff under Bowden had been, uh, it doesn't take a whole lot to get a staff uh, to to get on a sour relationship with college coaches. And uh, you certainly wouldn't want your your introduction uh, to be you having to you know tell a kid that you took a commitment that he needs to look elsewhere. So uh, I see it, I understand it, and uh, there's some things that I'll be you know critical or not even critical, concerned of on the recruiting trail and the 2020 class. But the you know the lack of commitments is is not one of them at this point in time for me anyway. Now look, there's absolutely a situation where this blows up in FSU's face. Like, let's be fair, right? I, I get why they're doing this. I don't disagree with their strategy here. I, I, I think there's some merit to it. And I think you agree as well. But this works if you have at least an okay year on the field, right? And, and are able to, to continue to build these relationships and get out and see kids in person. This works if we have a somewhat normal visiting schedule in the fall, right? This works if if maybe the visiting schedule is is opened up even more in the fall. If for some reason the visiting schedule in, in the fall is more compressed or more limited, right? For I mean, if, if we were to have some kind of spike or something like that to where the schools that went ahead and loaded up with these commits end up just keeping them, I think it's much harder to flip kids without any kind of visits or local element in your favor. I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're going to have at least normal visits in the fall. And I think, I think FSU's location relative, like some other national schools, 
may help it some within the state of Florida, which is clearly a spot they need to work on on their relationships and, and building their, their reputation with kids as a staff, not, not as a school, but as a staff. So, you know, given that, I, I think their plan makes sense. It's not foolproof. If we do have visits, you know, like compressed, then that's going to be, uh, or, or reduced, then that could be a bit of an issue in the fall. But I, that's not something I, I think you want to build your strategy around necessarily. Let's get some, some cool news coming here. Uh, had some guys and a little source action within a program. And uh, this is something I think a lot of other, other recruiting analysts are in on as well. Uh, receiver Josh Burrell and tight end Jackson West. Uh, the confidence over there in the Moore Center is is pretty high on those two guys, Edgar. Understandably, uh, or at least I understand the message being delivered. And yeah, so two interesting prospects. I mean, again, neither, you know, these kids aren't going to push to be, uh, you know, major award winners at the high school level or four or five star prospects, in my opinion. But uh, let's start with the the Jackson West kid out of Alabama, and then we can come back to the Carolina wide receiver. West is a a really interesting prospect, in my opinion. Plays, my understanding, there's a little bit of a basketball background as well, which is seemingly a pretty common occurrence for a lot of the kids in this class. Um, I've had three different people talk to me about this kid being kind of like a glue guy for a program. Uh, doesn't mean he's not a talented tight end. Doesn't mean he ultimately wouldn't project uh, as a player, but he's certainly held in exceptionally high esteem, uh, high esteem, high regard uh, for what he offers as far as a you know a locker room presence, a guy that you can kind of continue to build a, a positive culture around. Interesting prospect, and in that he's not on social media, is my understanding. It's just not your your typical recruit by a couple different accounts, but uh, looks like Florida state's going to go into Alabama, uh, get a, get a prospect to commit. And uh, is one of the guys that I think they think is, uh, you know, talented, but also a continuation of a trend of, of building a better overall locker room. No doubt. Uh, yeah. They, they need to, uh, they, they definitely need to do that. Um, that's, I think that's going to be a priority uh, for the staff to, to get, to get some good team guys. Now it doesn't mean get guys without talent. Um, I actually watched West film for the first time last night, and I, I see a guy who looks like a a, a pretty decent athlete. Um, and he also has has some basketball clips that that aren't, aren't half bad either. Uh, seems like a, a fairly willing blocker. Uh, now he's not like Michael Trigg athletic, who is the the other tight end Fort State is, is targeting in this class, and, and I think is in good position with. Not like it's going to commit tomorrow position with, but. Uh, Okay, if they take the Jackson West kid, then I, I think that would certainly be a guy who can help them. Um, we know that I, I don't think Florida State thinks all that much of the tight ends on its roster right now, just flat out. That's not the impression I get. So they definitely want to take two tight ends in this class and, and based on their offer list. I mean, look how many offers that they've already thrown out at the tight end position. What are they offered? Like probably 15 kids? 13. Okay. I mean, that, and that's not even including like your, your jumbo athlete types. Um, I mean, 13 offers for tight end is, is a decent bit. And they want to go ahead and take two. If they get Trigg and Jackson West, I, I think they, they should be uh, extremely happy. Trigg, of course, is the kid out, out of Sefner Christian uh, there, um, obviously, in, in, in Sefner. Uh, so that's, that's pretty interesting there. And then receiver Josh Burrell is a kid who... Uh, is not being recruited very, very much by the in-state schools. It doesn't appear in South Carolina, but is a dude who, to me, profiles as a uh, a pretty good player, more of a possession receiver, I, I would say, 
overall. Uh, good size, 6'2", legitimate, 200-plus. Uh, my question on him would, would be the speed, but certainly this is a guy this, this staff likes a lot. Uh, I will say for the most part, the kids Florida State is actually getting commitments from right now are guys with whom it already had an, an existing relationship, right? I mean, if we think about this, Brennan Jennings obviously was somebody everybody recruited prior, and then him being a uh, you know, him being a commit is sort of a no brainer as long as you do your, do your job on him. Hunter Washington is a player uh, who the staff was already recruiting when he or when when they were at Auburn. Uh, Luke Altmyer is a guy that Mike Norvell was recruiting from Memphis. Uh, Josh Farmer is a guy I don't think they actually were recruiting prior, but but he at least got on campus. Jake Slaughter again has been on campus. Kevin Knowles. Uh, pretty sure was on campus actually in the for one of the junior days, and I believe Auburn was also involved in his recruitment. Dequavion Fuller is still listed as a commitment in the class. Uh, that's that's uh, um, Quayshon's brother. I don't know really what his status will be in the class. I haven't heard a whole lot uh, about him there. And then the, the the two kids who are not yet committed, but I, I think have a good chance to be committed, Burrell uh, and West. I I think I, yeah, Burrell visited for sure. In this, in, in, uh, for one of those junior days. And then West, I think did, but I know the staff was, was already involved with him at their prior stop. So their actions are consistent with their words in terms of like, we're not really looking to take kids who we didn't already have a visit or excuse me, a relationship with or whom have not, you know, we've not visited and, uh, and, and seen in person. It, it seems like they don't want to have to backtrack, right? They, they'd rather. Have a solid foundation, and that's there's a couple staffs out there doing that. Uh, one of them is named Alabama, uh, and there's some staffs out there who are just absolutely loading up on kits, um, and, and we'll see how that works. Like Minnesota has 17 kits right now. A good majority of them have never visited the campus. I don't know how sustainable that is. You know, I mean, Rutgers has 18. How many of those kids have ever visited Rutgers? I, I, I don't know. Just just looking up and down the list is just kind of it's interesting. Um, right now, Florida State's class rates, where are they at here? 41st, but in terms of like average star rating within the ACC, uh, they are actually ahead of Miami. Miami is at an 87.68. Florida State is at an 89.25 in terms of average player rating. Uh, They're third in the ACC, trailing uh, North Carolina and in Clemson, which has kind of a crazy list right now, but we get negative iTunes reviews if we if we talk about Clemson positively. So I'm just going to say, yeah, Clemson's doing all right. But yeah, that, that's that's kind of the trend, man. They they want, and I feel like they think that these guys they're taking are going to be committed, committed They're dudes who actually want to be a, be a part of, of the rebuild. Yeah, I think that's a a fair thing to talk about in a in an overall trend that's uh, that's very much been the case. Uh, there there was some. Some negative news on the recruiting trail uh, over the past week or so. Micah Pettis is a kid that we've talked an awful lot about and talked an awful lot about and been pretty frank about the fact that we didn't think he was an immediate take for Florida State. Um, big kid out of Alabama, I think 24-7 list him at like 6'8", 219, something like that. Um, you know, all offensive tackles are, are pretty big. This happens to be an even bigger body and maybe a larger project. Nonetheless, it's still an offensive tackle that was on the board that has since committed elsewhere. So um, we'll talk about Pettis. We'll talk about some of the other things that are out there in this class. But I mean, just as a as somebody who sits here and looks at what's happened over the past eight weeks or so, 
Am I wrong to say that the name Rod Orr may be one of the more definitive prospects out there as far as how we view Florida State's class and how ultimately successful uh, we look at some of their their attempts to address the offensive tackle position? Obviously, there's a lot of time. There'll be probably a couple other names to pop up. But at this point, uh, if there's any singular prospect out there that uh, that I could put Florida State in front of, that's a realistic possibility um, or kind of jumps out at me as, as one of the more definitive prospects uh, as to whether or not we judge this uh, a success. So I don't, I don't know if you're wrong and, and I don't know if you're right. I think you might end up being very right there. Pettis, from what I understand, was, was not a take, right? Florida State offered, quote unquote, offered Pettis uh, back in what, like the first week in February? So w- well before I think most people who are not epidemiologists thought that we were going to head for a national shutdown. Uh, he was a camp offer, a, a guy who, if he came to camp, if he showed up in shape, because I, I don't think he's 319. I, I think he's maybe 40 or 50 pounds heavier than that based on looking at his video and, and seeing some photos. Is he a kid who you want to take right now? I think before the state, the fact that like you haven't really seen him in, in person work out, the answer is no. Rod Orr, on the other hand, if he wanted to commit, would they take him? I, I don't know about that. I, I think so, but I think there's a number of these guys right now who Florida State just didn't want to get kind of, I don't know, what, what, what's kind of stuck with. You know what I mean? I, I, know, I know you were talking to people about, about this recently, and I think you have a, an interesting insight on this because Orr and Pettis to me, I think Orr, neither of them are, are, are good players right now, right? They have some good highlights. I think Orr has more upside though. Significantly, in my opinion, but yeah, yeah, uh, the play with Orr is that he's that he's an upside guy and uh, a big body that you could shape in time. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a fairly definitive idea it seems uh, from Florida State recruiting in general, but particularly this is um, maybe even personified more in the the search for offense alignment, offense tackles. Is that this staff is not uh, you know not in a rush to load up on on numbers because the idea that there seems to be the idea that the kids that they bring in in 22 uh, or 21 will probably be more talented than that of which they can offer. Uh, the 21 class will probably have uh, kids on it that are potentially over-recruited in 22, and maybe even the case in 22 for 23. Uh, this staff is positive about what they think their overall trend line and recruiting is going to look like, what the the prospects that they look like. Uh, or that they think they're going to be involved with uh, moving forward. And uh, they think that they're going to have more success next year uh, than this one. So that's nice. And I almost uh, uh, certainly agree with parts of that sentiment. It, there is a, a lot of risk involved. I mean, there there is um, the continuation of offensive tackle, offensive line overall, but offensive tackle being a concern. Um, but also, I, I certainly get the idea if you don't want to you know, load up on a bunch of aspects of your roster that you don't think you're ever going to be able to really get meaningful playing time from. So um, offensive tackles, a very interesting position. We'll continue to look at it. Uh, we've devoted as much time to offensive tackles we ever have any uh, position group in the history of the Nolcast, and there's a reason for it. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting strategy from the staff that I think has become more clear over time uh, that they really want to try to get kids. If they're going to get kids on the roster – they want kids that they ultimately think they can get some level of production from 
and they're not just throwing you know throwing throwing names at a board to to make a position look a little bit better. Does it also make you think that they feel like they got some at least like solid floor type players in the twenty class with Garrett Schrader and and Robert Scott and uh, the kid from Madison County, uh, Zane Herring? Uh, I do think that the staff probably thinks higher of the 20 kids than, than we would have maybe thought, uh, and that they do think there's some some pieces there with which to work with. And yeah, there's not the immediate uh, concern. I don't want to say that tight end's more of a, a need for tackle, but uh, j- judging by some that I talked to, the, there was there was a more glowing concern like, a, oh, damn, we need to address this immediately uh, at that position more than than necessarily the offensive tackle, which is a little bit of a surprise to me, but uh, I can see it, particularly the emphasis that this staff puts on tight ends that maybe previous ones haven't. I think what you said there makes a lot of sense, though, in that, so if they, like, if you're right, if they think more of those 20 kids than, than maybe we do, then their thought is like, okay, if we sign... If we sign this kid or that kid or whomever in 21, is he actually going to be able to pass up a Garrett Schrader or a Zane Herring or, or Robert Scott in 22, in, in 23, right? Like, because that'll be his, his second and third year on campus. If the answer is no, then like, clearly you can't take a zero at the position. You can't pass at the position. But I think it does make some sense to be able to say, okay, I don't want to have a low upside guy eating a scholarship on my roster for four years if I already feel like I already have some dudes who can be solid but maybe not amazing players. And yeah, I think your point about being recruited over in 22 makes some sense. So I, I guess like shooting for upside here, I, I can see their strategy. Now you have to, in my opinion, you got to pair that strategy with the knowledge that the the transfer waiver uh, is almost certainly going to pass come January 2021, so you'll you should be able to have more luck fixing. If you need to go get depth for a given season, you should have more luck next year in the transfer market than you do this year. And also, the staff has a pretty good track record of recruiting junior colleges. So, assuming we have a junior college season, which is not guaranteed at this point, uh, but assuming that happens, I think there's a, a good chance that they can also address uh, floor. With the Ju- with the JUCOs, and so they want to get more athletic, higher upside guys in this class, uh, which is why they're not taking commitments for some of the dudes who recently have committed elsewhere and, and caused some flipouts. I, I I can see their strategy. They, they still have to balance the four some, in my opinion, uh, but I, I can see what they're doing. And there's been a, a little bit of this overall, um, whether it be offensive line or anywhere in the program, where uh, you know there there does to be seem to be a belief that if you're going to take uh, a quote unquote developmental guy um, doesn't mean that it has to pan out. Obviously, uh, uh, not every recruitment goes the way you think it does, but the there has to be something to justify it. There has to be an idea that if you're going to take a developmental guy, that the ceiling is there uh, that would justify you know you having to kind of nurture him two to three years before you're ultimately able to get something out of him. And I, I think that's been true at offensive tackle and uh, pretty much across the board, regardless of position uh, that this staff has evaluated so far. So something for us to keep in the back of our minds. Um, We talked about this. It was either last podcast or two podcasts ago. Um, Honestly, it's been an area of concern and something that I've almost, uh, you know, wanted to put my head in the sand and act as though it is not uh, real. But at this point, uh, you know, Fabian Lovett and, and Florida State, doesn't look like it's going to work out. Uh, we talked about this, uh, again, whether it was last pod or two pods ago, 
that there's no nothing binding there, uh, that Lovett had removed his Florida State mentions and, uh, you know, graphics from his social media profile, which is normally not a good sign. And uh, at this point in time, it looks like Fabian Lovett's a hell of a lot more likely to go to college in Oxford, Mississippi than he is Tallahassee. Yeah, uh, several reports out there ha- have him uh, likely to join his, his buddy uh, at, at Ole Miss, uh, who is a, uh, a DB. Is this the Jaron Jones kid that uh, yeah. that Florida State was briefly involved in, depending on how you look at it? Yeah. Yep. The Jones kid, I mean, I certainly understand, is a name that'll be familiar to many on this. In, in Terrell Buckley in Oxford now? Uh, yep. So that's, you know, I get it. I get it. Um but love it. That's a tough. That's a toughie. Uh, you know, Florida State hadn't had a whole lot of success in the transfer portal in general. That was uh, their biggest coup by far, and uh, that doesn't materialize. Which at this point, it doesn't look like it is. Then that's a that's a disappointing thing, and that's uh, you know not something that's going to impact twenty twenty. But that's a a talented name that wouldn't otherwise be joining your roster. And I don't really want to sugarcoat people when I tell them that. So that's that's a that's a setback. But we'll see what happens. You know what else works out really well? Oh, hell, hell of a lot better than the Fabian, Fabian Lovett transfer. Is getting a home loan with Shannon Young. When you call 844-FSU-LOAN, you will get hooked up with the best loan guy in the business through Rezo and absolutely phenomenal experience. I've done my home loan and my refi through him. Over 50 Noel Cash listeners have as well. I actually have to run to the store today to send out even more shirts and, and graduation packages for everybody. And my wife was even nice enough last night to write the notes because feedback from y'all has been my handwriting is absolutely terrible. And you're correct. Uh, I got, you know, five star uh, loan pitching skills, about two star handwriting skills. And so if you are one of those lucky seven who just got their, their loans through, through, uh, through Shannon Young, 844 FSU loan, you'll be getting a, uh, a much more legible handwritten note. Great customer service from Shannon. And uh, we're even going to throw some koozies in there for y'all. So very happy to see that. And uh, we also want to thank here our Patreon members who have supplied us a lot of questions. We're going to get to as many as we can in this episode. We've been overflowed with them. So we're going to have to probably do another episode this week. And uh, here is a teaser, Ingram, for, from an up, upcoming episode series we're going to have called uh, Nullcast Moments. And uh, so we're not going to do many of these today, but uh, but Chris has one for us. And he says, Bud Ingram, could you give some Louisiana hot sauce takes about the 2011 and 2012 recruiting class for Florida State uh, and, and their, that led to their last national title. He said, please spin us some happy stories as we all need it right now. Uh, thanks. And, and he, uh, he he says thanks to us. So very awesome there from, from Chris. I'll take uh, I'll take 2011 if you want to take 2012. Okay. Uh, lead us off, please. So in 2011, their, their hit rate on, on that 2011 class was, was really, really good. Probably a little bit unsustainable and just the the up and down hit rate on it was 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 pretty good. Um, but if you look at the top of their class, it's interesting. So, of their kids who were rated in, in the top 100 nationally, you had some guys really hit. Right, Timmy Jernigan, no doubt a hit. He was 11th player overall in the country. Bobby Hart was a hit. Now people might say he wasn't that great at Florida State. No, but he was what, what a three or four year starter, starter on the national title team. He's still in the NFL. Um, Bobby was interesting because he was like a 16-year-old college freshman because he was what almost two. He was not two full years, but he was like almost two full years ahead of grade level. Um, Nick Wasom didn't really succeed at Florida State, right? Transferred out, I think. Uh, I mean, he he never ended up being a big starter. Good, good player. wasn't 
Yeah, it wasn't a good fit. Uh, was a much better fit under Bob Stoops than he was Jeremy Pruitt. Uh, was a starter, not Bob Stoops. Sorry. Mark Stoops. Uh, Mike Stoops. Three Stoops. <laughs> was a Mark Stoops. All the Stoops brothers. All the Stoops really liked Waysom. In fact, made him a starter for a period of time. Had a real uh, pretty decent game in the uh, 2012 Clemson game, if I remember, but just didn't didn't fit with what Pruitt wanted to do and uh, was kind of minimized from that point moving forward. Exactly. Uh, James or Nick O'Leary. He turned out all right, I would say. I mean, probably the best tight end in Florida State history. Uh, James Wilder. Pretty famous grandfather, if I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. His, his grandpa is, yeah. is famous, I heard. <laughs> um, James Wilder, not not too bad either. Now, you might say, hey, he was a bust. I, I don't think you could say he was a bust. He didn't live up to that top 25 potential. Obviously, he didn't get uh, di- didn't get drafted. Um, but he, he was a valuable contributor uh, at, at times, and, and he wasn't a zero in college. Carlos Williams had some nice moments as well. Uh, always thought he, he'd be better on offense. Eventually, they, they did move him to offense. He was actually the number, number four player in the whole nation. And I, I think that just spoke to his athleticism. And he was kind of weird in that, like, he was a dude who I thought was probably better suited for offense who wanted to play defense. And that almost never happens. It's almost always, hey, I want the ball in my hand, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. The best two receivers, I, I think, that Jimbo ever signed. Uh, were in this class for Shot Green and Kelvin Benjamin. They really struggled to get elite receivers to, to Tallahassee. Most of that, I think, was was due to Coach Dawsey just you know not really inspiring guys that much to come. Um, Devontae Freeman, I, I think most of y'all know this story, right? Have we told this before? We probably have. But if you're if you're a newer listener, if you don't really remember a, a decade ago now how, how this went down. And Devontae's been in the news recently for wanting a new contract, I think, and I hope he gets it because everybody's NFL career is so short. Uh, But Devontae, there was a kid named Brandon Gaynor. So so Brandon Gaynor was the starter at Miami Central. And due to to practice field limitations, Central was practicing at night, like actually at night some days. And so I think think it was Coley actually. No, no. Because Coley had Palm Beach or Broward at the time. Uh, so I think it would have been Eddie Grand, probably at that point. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Eddie Grand. Okay. So, so Eddie goes to school and Gaynor uh, is having to take, having to take night classes, right? To, to finish up some, some coursework. I, I don't know if he wanted to early enroll or something, but the, the backup was in the lineup and Central was practicing or scrimmaging or, or however, uh, however they want to tell the story. And really, that's how Florida State got word of Devontae Freeman. He really hadn't done anything, uh, at least not much, to his high school career at that point. And that was that was pre-Huddle days, right? Like, I don't think... It's pretty pretty raw. I mean, I, I think Huddle was out there, uh, but there was not uh, not a ton of stuff that you could just dial up and instantly look at 10 years ago. Yeah, like I found the Devontae Freeman Huddle, but it's, it's the wrong Deva- Devontae Freeman. Also not uncommon in the early days of Huddle uh, either. There was YouTube and stuff back then, but like th- this is back in the days, I'm not going to say it was pre-digital film because we certainly had the internet in, in, in the class of 2011, but like they would have found him in 2009, right? And so, because Gaynor was class of 2010, so this was they would have found him, I think, in, in like spring of 09. So Gaynor is not there at practice. Freeman looks really good. And Florida State basically knows about this kid because of that pretty much before anybody else. It, 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 we could say it's a great job of scouting. It's also just luck, 
right? That you happened to be there on the day that the starting running back was taking night classes. And so the backup uh, also looked absolutely amazing uh, for them. And like Freeman's a guy who just kept getting better, I, I, I think, and really ended up being pretty rocked up, uh, kept getting in the weight room. He was like 5'8", but kind of close to 200. Uh, so that was that was important. Man, we, we might we might save 2012. We, we, we could talk 2012 later. Just looking back here at different classes. Uh, I remember Jacob Ferencrug, the staff being really excited about him and ended up he really couldn't play. They love that kid. I mean, you and I, I got a, I got a call in the middle of the summer about how this kid could bend like nobody ever could, could snap the ball with the ankles on his ground. I mean, like detailed, detailed stuff about how in love they were with Farron Krug and whoo boy, that, uh, that never materialized with, uh, uh, Josue Matias, obviously, uh, that there's a story there that, that James Coley, uh, who speaks Spanish, uh, there was a big advantage there getting him from New Jersey because was it his mom or his dad who didn't speak English or not much English? Uh, and so, yeah, I think it was his dad. I don't remember exactly, but, uh, this to me is kind of like my my favorite period of Florida State recruiting, and brings back a lot of a lot of good memories. It's a, <laughs> Chris, uh, you were right. If nothing else, it let us walk down a uh, a positive positive memory lane here for a little bit. Just a, a major major point in Florida State football, and I would argue that probably James Wilder Jr. didn't end up being the player that you wanted him to be on the field. Uh, had some great moments and really happy for James that he's found success in Canada and has done as well as he has. Um, but as far as sending a, sending a message to the rest of the recruiting world in the Southeast, particularly sending a message to Gainesville uh, that that you were going to be an absolute pain in the ass and that the dynamic in the, of the state had shifted, uh, James Wilder and and then a, a linebacker in the class previous by the name of Jeff Luck, I think, were as, uh, as influential as anybody in kind of reasserting Florida State's presence in the state and giving legitimacy to uh, a staff that needed it at the time. Absolutely. I, I got a couple more good stories here just going down this list. There's a kid on here. I'm not going not gonna to dime him out. But I had an FSU coach tell me that, and this is a good example here. If you're like, hey, do, do all these guys get paid like by bagmen? No, not all. There's a kid who FSU signed who actually had like a street agent, right? And the coach told me that he told him Hey, uh, you're not good enough to have a street agent. If you want to commit to us, lose that dude and then call me back. And the kid did commit. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a good, honest conversation. Uh. <laughs> that's that, that's uh, yeah, for sure. Let me see who else here. Tyler Hunter was was a guy that was just an awesome sophomore season in high school. I mean, he he was really really good, and then he then he got hurt. Remember? Yeah, Hunter's shame, man. Hunter was such a good player and. Just not, you know, once he had that neck injury, it was just a, a different dynamic, uh, definitely. Really good player. Terrence Smith, linebacker out of Southwest Cab that was signed. Uh, again, just a nice program guy. Guy who overcame a lot in his own you know, personal life uh, to turn into a hell of a college ball player. And I'm not sure what Smith's doing. I think he might, be, might still be with the Chiefs. Uh, I hope so. I hope so. I hope Terrence is, you know. Got pension eligible, if nothing else. Uh, so I think that's pretty much everybody. I'm trying to see if we missed on. Uh, we mentioned Jernigan right off the bat. That again, massive prospect, but also, you know, very much validation. Jernigan was a, a national signing day uh, commitment and was kind of the final, 
final feather in the cap that uh, Florida State was uh, was back, was going to beat major schools for kids. And uh, the Jernigan, man, UF was so convinced they had Jernigan. Uh, now, not, not leading up to signing day. They knew they were in a fight. But like his sophomore, junior year, uh, the idea that Timmy Jernigan was going to go anywhere other than Gainesville was a was honestly laughed at by by the UF staff. So uh, to give you an idea as to how much ground they made up, and just a you know again another another player that was kind of transformational in in the class. Um, Errington Jenkins, old old Niles Lawrence Stampy, man, that was one of my favorite players. That dude, you want to talk about a fun fun high school tape? That was a what a six foot three hundred and five pound middle linebacker uh, on some of his high school tape. Yeah. That was crazy. That was, ooh, yeah, this is fun. A lot of fun. It really was, man. I think I got like two more from this class, and then we, then we got to get uh, one more question answered before we get out of here because this is this is too much fun. We're, we're going to keep uh, we're going to keep doing these throughout May and June. Um, you remember Arrington Jenkins? Uh, boy, do I! Yes, yeah. <laughs> awesome highlight tape. Really wasn't sure if he was going to qualify. Maybe some lack of of uh, common sense shown in terms of comments made to the police, right? When uh, w- when you get caught stealing a motorcycle with the whole like scooter old scooter incident, yeah, yeah. If you don't want it, uh, I, I don't have the exact quote here, so I'm going to paraphrase. It was something along the lines of like, if you don't want it stolen, why did you leave it outside? <laughs> I was like, okay, that's, I mean, there's there's something to that in in a country with no laws. Uh, there is there is some legitimacy to that, but uh, not your best defense strategy at the same time. Yeah, Trey Jackson ended up being a multi year starter for the Knolls, and uh, he was actually a D tackle who got hurt as a junior, so nobody really had junior film on him. Georgia Tech took him. He was from Wayne County in Jessup, Georgia. I should have just quizzed you on the county there. Georgia Tech had the whole Clemson rule where if you visit other schools, they 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 drop you, and Trey Jackson tested that rule by visiting Florida State as a senior because he, he had put together some solid senior film. They liked him a lot. And Georgia Tech uh, got ticked off about that. And he ended up uh, committing to Florida State. Bama was in on it, but I don't think Bama ever gave him the green light to commit. Because uh, I know there was some worry there from Florida State, like would would Bama actually take him? You know, uh, So FSU beats out Georgia Tech for him. And he's not a DT for FSU. He's actually an offensive, offensive lineman. And then the, uh, the the bottom four players in the class, Trey Pettis, Ruben Carter, Sterling Lovelady, Austin Barron, uh, were offensive linemen. And uh, they, they really uh, washed out, which was not entirely uncommon to see during, uh, during Rick, Rick Trickett's time. I, mean, I know Lovelady and Barron played a couple games. Carter and Pettis really never, never did anything. And then uh, the one kid they signed who they didn't get into the class uh, it was a dude who really had awesome athleticism. I, I don't know if Terry Bell, if his highlight tape is still on YouTube. He, he played for a school that he played for a school that didn't have. Yeah, I remember this kid. Yeah, Jimbo was in love with this kid. I don't know if there's if there's Terry Bell videos still on YouTube. Terry Bell was was pretty legit, man. A lot of stuff to overcome. I don't think he ever ended up sticking at junior college. That, that's back when schools sign, like signed to place players a, a little more frequently. Uh, than they do now. Um, most schools don't do that because of the scholarship spots. Although Florida did it like three or four times in a prior class, which I don't know if it was intentional or not in many cases. Uh, so yeah, that was class of 2011. We should really do 2012. I, I know we have a, have a lot of stories back in, in sort of the Wild West days with, with these kids back when stuff was a, a little less buttoned up than it is now. Speaking of buttoned up, you know somebody who's buttoned up? That's Travis Johnson. Travis Johnson 
of the Metter and Johnson firm. Travis is a board-certified family law attorney with more than a decade of experience in the field of family law. He actually teaches the stuff as well. If you want a true expert, you need to call Travis Johnson, 850-435-9919. We know this is a really tough economic situation for folks right now. Some people have lost their jobs. Some people have been furloughed. They're, They're looking forward to coming back. A lot of people have had a reduction in income. Well, it's really important that if you lose your income or you have a a different income now, that you go and get a court order modification of your child support or alimony payment as soon as possible. Because as Travis wants you to know, any reduction from that order is only retroactive to the time you filed, not to the time that your income was reduced or lost. So very important there. It's at the time you file. How do you file? Call Travis Johnson, 850-435-9919. You might not need the number today. Can't hurt to take it down in case you ever have a situation where you need a real expert in family law. For NOLCAST listeners, he offers a free consult and flexible payment rates during this difficult time. All right, got a couple uh, current roster questions that we'll hit before we uh, before we wrap up this episode of the NOLCAST. Jimmy writes, with so many new running backs this season, are any of them known to be good in pass protection? In general, who has a high ceiling, high floor, or is it too early to tell uh, especially with some of their prior injuries. LeBourne, I don't think, is a plus in pass protection. Um, I have not seen any pass protection highlights from the from the junior college kid they took. Maybe it's on his tape that I missed, but I, I don't I don't think so. Typically, kids don't don't put pass protection on there unless they're just totally you know blowing somebody up. Uh, I, I think Corbin actually is someone who now he started because. A&M didn't really have anybody else, uh, and, and, but he was very good for them when he, when he did start. Um, so my guess here is that he's okay in it. I have not, I'm not going to lie to y'all and tell you that, that he's you know, specifically good in pass protection, but Corbin's a guy that Florida State definitely likes a lot. Uh, and I think in order to at least start for, for Jimbo, you need to, you need to care. You need to try. Definitely. And that's really what that boils down to. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it's, it's a skillless, uh, ambition. It's certainly not, but you know, one of the best pass protecting backs I've ever seen and is considered this on Sundays as well. It's work done. Work done was incredible. It's because he cared because he tried. He was also short and would blow your ankles up, but uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take a massive individual to do that. It takes buy-in and it takes, uh, you know, caring about the guy behind you. Absolutely. So uh, the second part of uh, Jimmy's question, he asks in general, who has a high ceiling, high floor? Uh, or is it too early to tell, especially with some of the prior injuries? I don't think that Corbin's injury is something that's going to sap him of his athleticism. So I would say that he continues to have a high floor. I, I think LeBorn has a high floor. And, and I was excited to see him uh, be rated, or not rated highly, excuse me, but, but actually do well as far as the academic honors uh, for the spring. So I know FSU staff's extremely excited about that. I, I think those two guys have have fairly high ceilings. Um, Corbin, maybe more so than LeBorn, but like, I don't think LeBorn has lost a ton of his athleticism. And so I, I would still put him in that category. I, I don't know about LaDamian Webb necessarily at, at like a ceiling on, on a Juco kid. Um, Tofili, I think is a pretty good prospect. Is he a freak, freak athlete based on the times I've seen him? No, but I think he's at least a, a solid athlete. Um, and then Corey Wren is, is another dude who, you know, maybe more of a receiver for you, but I think he's got a a whole lot of speed. So I guess from the the ceiling perspective, you know, maybe he has the raw tools, but but he's also not that big. So I, I don't want to just go crazy on that. 
Steven asked a question, how about the wide receivers? I think all of Null Nation is hoping to see more consistency out of Terry, but I'm hoping to see more guys step up to help the offense. Yeah. Which receiver, other than Terry and Hilton, can we expect a huge step from? Well, uh, hmm. who do you expect a, a big step from this year? I'll, I'll let you go first on this one. I don't know if I expect it. I know that I'd love to see it. I mean, if, if you ever get the kid out of... <laughs> Out of Rockdale County online, the Jordan Young. I mean, that's just that's a pretty. I know you have a a lot of knowledge and past uh, experience with his recruiting and stuff. But that's a what was that a Georgia State champion in the triple jump or something like that? Exceptionally talented, a lot of tools there, big body. Um, I think that's a guy, not necessarily who will replace Terry, but has the ability to uh, to give you some similar skill set and maybe give you some of the production that's needed once he leaves. Uh, I would love to see the emergence of Young and to think that the potential there is starting to be reached in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, it's interesting because like some of your guys who I think are higher upside dudes are the guys who are also healthy this offseason, right? And, and Jordan Young and Warren Thompson, like you mentioned. And then you had the two dudes who are coming off injury in Keyshawn Helton and, and, and Ontario Wilson. Um, and obviously on, Ontario is, is somebody who's you know, very, uh, pretty reliable, you know, and, and that, that's normally somebody that I would expect to pick uh, in, in this situation. But coming off injury, I don't, I don't really know necessarily what he's going to give you. I, I assume he's going to be okay. I, I'll go with one here. I, I'll go with DJ Matthews, right? DJ's still with the program. I, I, I think he's bought in. It, it's, it's hard to trust that, you know, because you hear that all the time. And a lot of times it's, it's turned out to not be true. Uh, but I, I think Matthews could actually have a, a fairly big year for them w- when they do decide to go with their three receiver sets. All right, guys. I think that will, uh, guys and girls, uh, that that will bring about an end to this episode of the Nolcast. As always, uh, thank you very much to uh, our listeners for both the support that they give our sponsors and the support that they give us via uh, a listen or a written review, uh, f- five stars on, on Apple Podcasts or whatever it may be. Uh, We'll have another podcast out in the next uh, week or so. Uh, But until then, thank you to to all of you from myself and Bud, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you soon. This has been the Nolcast. The Nolcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and Ingram Smith, music by Judson Wright, and produced by Justin Robinson. Go Noles.